What we have is essentially a situation where the drug companies have become absolutely brilliant at controlling what doctors think they know about new drugs and controlling what the public thinks it knows about new drugs without the oversight that's necessary in a well-functioning market to make sure everyone's playing by the rules. And this is as ridiculous as having professional basketball players play games without referees and let them call their own fouls. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Ask your doctor about why the medical industry is driven by profit instead of benefits to patients. No, seriously, ask your doctor about this. We'd be surprised if they knew. Big pharmaceutical companies have done an excellent job of controlling nearly every aspect of medical science. How clinical trials are funded, what new drugs come on the market, how much these medications cost, and by sponsoring legislators, even who pays for them. Companies like Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, Merck, Purdue, and on and on have expertly kept doctors and regulators in the dark by obscuring raw clinical trial data and keeping it secret, then propping up the medical journals who peer-review this data. But Big Pharma isn't evil. I mean, it's just a system, and it can be amended to serve people instead of exploiting them. For example, the internet, another instance of a broken system, isn't, quote, evil just because it has horrible things on it like beheading videos, phishing scams, and J.K. Rowling's Twitter feed. Yet it's clear that Big Pharma is out of control and people are literally dying because of it. So how do we fix this problem? I'm Troy Farah, and you're listening to Narcotica. Our guest today is Dr. John Abramson, a longtime critic of Big Pharma, whose new book, Sickening, untangles the many perverse incentives that dominate American healthcare. It helps explain why drug prices are so high, why medications that harm instead of heal are regularly approved by the FDA, and much more. I wrote a review of the book for Undark Magazine, which you can read at undark.org, but I wanted to learn more, so I invited Dr. Abramson on the show. But first, let me tell you a little bit about Narcotica. Our beautiful website is parked at narcocast.com, and you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and much more. We're on social media too, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, etc., And we are an ad-free, listener-supported program. That means you won't be hearing ads for antidepressants, boner pills, or whatever. To support us, you can join our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash narcotica. You can join more than 65 people who help make this show possible. We have perks for listeners, such as stickers and more stuff coming. Without you, there would be no narcotica. So thank you so much for keeping us independent and on the air. Our guest today is Dr. John Abramson, who has taught healthcare policy at Harvard Medical School for 25 years. He was also a family physician for 22 years and has also served as an unpaid consultant to the FBI and Department of Justice, including in a case that resulted in the largest criminal fine in U.S. history. He is author of the new book, Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare and How We Can Repair It, which is available now. Dr. Abramson, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Troy. Let's start with a little bit on your background. Um, you've been a doctor for a while. Like, Do you remember when you first became uh, disillusioned with the medical industry, if that's a good way of putting it? Uh, what triggered that exactly? Good question. So I, uh, I, I'm a family doc. I did an internship and uh, went in the public health service and went back to Case Western and finished a residency and did a fellowship, uh, Robert Johnson Fellowship. Uh, where I learned statistics and epidemiology and research design. And then in in 1982, rather than going into academics, I decided I just wanted to be a a regular doc in the community and went into private practice. So in August of 1982, I think I started in private practice. And during that fellowship, we looked at a lot of articles in academic journals, and I never saw an article uh, that I thought was commercially biased. But in um, March of 1983, about six months after I went into practice, I went to what's called Grand Rounds at our local hospital, where the doctors get together uh, once a week and get a lecture from an expert on different subjects to maintain their current education. And I went to a lecture, and it was given by a faculty member uh, at Boston University 
who was an expert in pain control, and the lecture was advocating a drug called Zomax, uh, a new non-narcotic uh, pain reliever in 1983. And the doc gave the lecture, and then I learned that the drug had been pulled because it was dangerous prior to the doctor giving the lecture. And the doctor gave the lecture because he had been signed a contract uh, that uh, he agreed to deliver the uh, lecture for a certain amount of money from the manufacturer of Zomax. And it was so offensive to me that this guy was giving a lecture about a drug that had been pulled because he wanted to make the money and the drug company had offered him the money to give the lecture for a drug that was dangerous enough to get pulled. Um, that's what tipped me off to the idea that the knowledge that I was receiving as a physician might be biased by commercial influence. That's really interesting. So, I mean, you've seen this whole industry change a lot in the last several decades. Um, and, and I, I kind of want to talk about uh, Adalhem or Adu can new Mab. I, I hope I'm saying that right. <laughs> Adjahelm. It's easier that one. Yeah, Adahelm. Okay. Yeah. So this is an Alzheimer's drug that has been extremely controversial in the news. And it's it's mentioned in your book, um, but it's kind of tacked on at the end almost. And I don't mean that in like a critical way, but it's just like this came kind of recently. Uh and it's it's like there's like all these different examples that are just coming and coming. And you have so many good ones in your book that we'll we'll get to. But it's just hard to fathom. Yeah. So can you tell us a brief little history of this drug, Aduhelm, and, and why this is an example of big pharma's out-of-control marketing practices like in your book? So the reason why Aduhelm is tacked on as an afterword in the book is because this little episode happened after the book was written. Uh, it happened in the uh, spring and summer of last year. And the story is this. Adjahelm is a drug that decreases amyloid plaques in the brain. And amyloid plaques correlate with Alzheimer's disease and with the amount of compromise that is caused in individuals with Alzheimer's disease. So the drug companies make drugs that are targeted to these um, dysfunctional uh, findings or happenings in, in the body. And in this case, the, the drug Agihelm is a monoclonal antibody that was designed to attack and remove uh, amyloid plaques in the brain, which it does quite well. Um, unfortunately, although it removes amyloid plaques, the two studies that the manufacturer had done to um, evaluate the effectiveness and safety of Agihelm both failed to show efficacy and showed significant safety risks. In fact, 33% more people who took Agihelm had showed uh, signs of brain swelling on their MRIs, and 10% more people who took Agihelm showed brain swelling and had symptoms from it. The drugs showed, the, the two tests were stopped, the clinical tests were stopped for futility, meaning that there was so little benefit that it was statistically extremely unlikely that if the studies were continued, they would uh, start to develop benefits, start to show benefit. So we've got a drug that has significant safety problems that very clear and, and Biogen, the manufacturer, was forthright about the safety problems and a drug that was show, stopped where the clinical trials were stopped for futility. Um, and that one would think in a rational healthcare system would cause the drug not to be marketed. The statistical reviewer at the FDA looked at this data and said Agihelm was very unlikely to provide a meaningful benefit. And a, an advisory committee was convened. Uh, 10 of the members voted to turn down, not approve Agihelm. One member voted to abstain. Um, so the, the vote was 10. Ten to turn it down, one to abstain. Nonetheless, the FDA went ahead and approved the drug, which is mind-boggling to go against the statistical reviewer, to go against the nearly unanimous opinion of the advisory committee, and then to go ahead and approve the drug. And the 
reasoning that was given by the um, acting commissioner of the FDA um, at the time, uh, Dr. Janet Woodcock, was that because of the significant reduction in amyloid plaques, not an improvement, clinical improvement, and not safety, but because of the reduction uh, in amyloid plaques, she felt that it was appropriate to approve this drug because there was no other therapy available, and it was uh, approved on an accelerated in an accelerated pathway because of that. This was a, a jaw-dropping decision. If Biogen had succeeded in marketing this drug, which it priced at $56,000 a year, this drug that didn't provide significant clinical benefit and did provide significant harms, priced at $56,000 a year. If their marketing has had gone as planned, it would have the, the cost of Agihelm to Medicare Part B would have been 150% more than Medicare Part B was currently spending on drugs for a drug that was not clinically effective and significantly more dangerous. Yeah, that's just insane. It's insane. And three members of the advisory committee thought it was so insane that they were uh, quit, that they resigned from the advisory committee. Now, there is a little bit of good news in this story. When it started to leak out what what these simple facts were, and these facts are not, they're not in contention. These are the facts. Everyone knows the facts. But when it started to get out in the newspapers and um, uh, into the press, Biogen's marketing failed. This was just a bridge too far. So Biogen marked down, cut, cut its price in half to a mere $28,000 a year for a drug that didn't help clinically and was significantly more dangerous. And still, the, there's enough sanity left in our healthcare system so that healthcare systems and insurers uh, were not covering the drug and it's had very little sales. And I think that this marked the outside boundary of how crazy our pharmaceutical system can get. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about like just how easy is it to get a drug approved by the FDA and, and how, how has it gotten easier? And I guess, why is this a problem too? Because, you know, I, especially before the pandemic or right when it was starting, like everybody's like, the FDA process is a little slow. They, they changed the rules a little bit to kind of... Uh, accelerate the development of vaccines, which was mostly just doing um, different parts of the stages of, uh, of approval, which you can correct me on this at the same time. They weren't like skipping steps. They were just not doing them in chronological order. They were doing them sort of at the same time. So on one hand, wouldn't you say it's like better that it's easier to get drugs approved by the FDA? But how difficult is it and why is that a problem? Well, it's a, it's a meme that it's uh, the FDA is uh, tougher to get uh, drug approval from than other drug uh, regulatory authorities in other countries. The FDA does the fastest approvals uh, amongst the wealthy countries. Drugs, new drugs get out into uh, use in the United States significantly faster than in other countries. And part of how that was executed was back in the 90s when aid drugs were uh, hung up in the FDA. Uh, approval process, and they truly were, and the drugs were truly effective. The uh, drug companies came up with this plan that they could stop the bottleneck of approvals at the FDA by contributing money to the FDA budget, the Prescription Drug User Fee Agreement, or PDUFA, is, as it's called. Um, what happened is that uh, as the amount of money that the drug companies were paying the FDA, the uh, percentage of the budget, uh, FDA's budget for human products has now gone up to 61%. So the majority of the FDA's funds to oversee the safety and efficacy of human products is paid for by the drug companies and the device companies. And part of the deal that came with that money was that there would be shorter timelines for review by the FDA so the drug companies could get their drugs out into uh, uh, public use quicker. Okay, so so what does the FDA actually you know accomplish 
why do they and they still seem to lack authority on a lot of basic things like we can get to some examples in your book like Viax, for example or uh neurontin mm-hmm. it seems like that they are both pushing things through faster and also failing to do a lot of basic safety checks or that kind of thing can you can we talk about what the fda could do better yeah so um those two uh, the the examples of Vioxx and Neurontin, which is now available as a generic called gabapentin, um, are different and they're illuminating both. Um, the big study for Vioxx, Vioxx was a, an anti-inflammatory drug, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug that was pushed because it was supposedly safer than drugs like Advil or um, um, uh, naproxen. Uh, Aleve, Advil or Aleve, um, because it supposedly caused fewer GI uh, bleeds, serious GI complications than the -the over-the-counter drugs. Um, What happened was the FDA was well aware that the results of that study showed that uh, far from being safer, Vioxx actually more than doubled the risk of heart attacks, strokes, and blood clots compared to the less expensive drugs. So the FDA knew that, but Merck, the manufacturer of Vioxx, submitted its data to the New England Journal of Medicine for publication. It was peer re- the data were peer, peer reviewed, and the New England Journal published an article in November of 2000 that stated, as Merck had claimed, that Vioxx was a safer drug because it was gentler on the stomach. So this exposes a whole lot wrong with the pharmaceutical industry in the United States. Number one, the article was peer-reviewed and published in the most prestigious journal in the world, and yet peer review does not allow the peer reviewers to see the actual data from the study. So the peer reviewers were not aware of what the FDA was aware, that Vioxx was a very dangerous drug that more than doubled the risk of heart attacks Uh, strokes and blood clots. So this article was published in the New England Journal. Um, Vioxx sales continued to go uh, very well. They were selling up to $2 billion a year of the drug. And three months after the article was published, the data from the FDA were published uh, on the web. Um, Public citizens sued the FDA for publication of their FDA officers' reports. Um, and on the web, it was published that Vioxx was a significantly more dangerous drug. And yet the, the New England Journal of Medicine didn't correct its article. So doctors were reading the New England Journal of Medicine and believing that they should prescribe Vioxx because it was safer. Now, not only did the New England Journal not correct its article, but the New England, sold, New England Journal of Medicine sold between uh, it sold about 900,000 reprints of that article back to Merck so Merck could give it to their drug reps to hand out to doctors to show that the New England Journal of Medicine said that this is a safer drug and you should prescribe it, when in fact, the New England Journal of Medicine and Merck knew that it was a significantly more dangerous drug. The upshot is that Approximately 30,000 Americans died from taking Vioxx after the New England Journal of Medicine knew that this was a significant problem and failed to correct it. it, it it's just jaw-dropping that, that this could happen in the United States. Yeah. I, I consider the whole Vioxx situation to sort of be a mass poisoning event, but I have not really seen it described as such. But th- I feel like that's what it is, right? Like... 30,000 to 60,000 people are estimated to have died from this. And it's because there was clear data showing this was dangerous, but it was obscured with the help of the FDA, with the help of the New England Journal of Medicine. And it was extremely profitable for these companies, for Merck. That's right. Now, Merck did pay out a lot of money. They got sued by 27,000 people who alleged that they were harmed. And uh, they had to pay out $4.7 billion to them, and they got fined almost a billion dollars from the Department of Justice for misrepresenting the safety of their drug. Um, So Merck didn't make a whole lot of money on this, but they didn't lose money. And I think more interestingly, nobody went to jail. 
30, uh, 40 to 60,000 people dead. Merck knew from the very beginning, from the day that the data from that study were opened up, March 9th, 2000, from that day, there was an email from the head scientist at Merck that's acknowledged the cardiovascular problems. And the, and the email said, but, but the class of drugs will do well that, Merck, that uh, Vox is a part of. And he said, this is almost unbelievable, but he said, and we will do well, meaning we will make money. And no one went to jail. Yeah, it's uh, these fines, they sound huge because they're billions of dollars. But, you know, in, in the grand scheme of the biotech profits, I mean, that was something that was surprising to me that I learned in the book, which is that the biotech industry makes more more return on investment than basically any other industry, better than fossil fuels, better than technology like the Internet or social media. Biotech, like if you put your money into that, you'll you're more likely to make a huge profit and that is concerning to me because so many of these um psychedelic companies are popping up everywhere and 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 they're dumping all this money into psychedelics um which i don't know how much you know about that industry or anything like that but it's weird how that this the structures of this of our pharmaceutical and healthcare industry are are built to be these giant profit generating machines and I mean, you're basically profiting off of human suffering, right? Well, um, I, I don't think that they create human suffering on purpose, but I think the, the core explanation to what's going on is that the fundamental purpose of drug companies is to maximize the return on investment to their stockholders and other investors. That's their job, to maximize return on investment. Whether their drugs help or hurt, it doesn't really matter as long as they're maximizing investment. And what we have is essentially a situation where the drug companies have become absolutely brilliant at controlling what doctors think they know about new drugs and controlling what the public thinks it knows about new drugs without the oversight that's necessary in a well-functioning market to make sure everyone's playing by the rules. And this is as ridiculous as having professional basketball players play games without referees and let them call their own fouls. It wouldn't work. Their job is to win. So we have referees. We have a lot of referees, four or six referees. I don't know how many referees there are in a basketball game, but a lot of referees. But what we have in the pharmaceutical industry is there's so much money and influence concentrated in that industry and their support of uh, their giving money and lobbying efforts to the politicians is so bipartisan that control of the drug industry has become impossible. So we've got a situation where between two thirds and three quarters of all the profits in the world for the drug industry come from the United States. And what's happening to Americans' health? It keeps going down in comparison to the citizens of the other world who aren't spending this kind of money on drugs. I like how you said that, you know, these drug companies aren't necessarily doing this on purpose. We are creating perverse incentives and they're just, you know, following that kind of. It's like a system. And, you know, if you put a train on tracks, it's going to go in one direction, right? So because I think it's so easy to just bash big pharma and say things like a corporation is evil. I don't actually think a corporation can be evil because a corporation isn't a person. It's just a, it's just a system. It's a tool, technology, or however you want to frame it. But I don't think calling it evil is a really constructive way of talking about this. So when you talk about how the systems are structured, and, and you do a really great job of this in the book, going back to Reagan and sort of how these how uh, healthcare was deregulated, then you can kind of see how it evolved to the way that it got to this point. I, I guess, you know, th this topic always brings up so much uh, distrust in the medical industry. Um, and even after people read some of my review, they were like, oh, well, I don't, this is why I don't do big pharma. But I don't think that was the point you're trying to make with the book. And it's certainly not what I took away from it. But, it, you know, it, it, there are definitely some major issues to iron out in American healthcare. 
but that doesn't mean the whole idea is rotten. So, so how do you parse that? Like, yeah, Troy, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it's really important because we've got to understand that medical science can do some miraculous things. I mean, controlling HIV infections is, is just fabulous thing. The vaccines, the mRNA vaccines for COVID, they work really well, but only of the new molecular entities that are approved by the FDA each year, about 30 uh, new, truly new drugs are approved each year. Only one out of four of those 30 drugs has been shown to be superior to previously available drugs. Now, you could say one out of four is a pretty good batting average when you get uh, vaccines for COVID in a matter of months instead of years, or when you can control HIV infection and make render people non-infectious. One out of four is good. The problem is that our system of evaluating these drugs, peer-reviewing the articles, and getting this knowledge out to doctors is so broken that doctors have no way of knowing which one of the four new drugs is actually beneficial, more beneficial than any therapy that had been available. So the, the quandary that you're talking about, Troy, with folks who read your review and said, well, wait a minute, that's why I don't take any drugs and I'm never taking any drugs. No, one out of four of them is going to be really important. And the problem with our healthcare system is that we don't have a way of knowing in real time which one of the four. So many people are anti-vaxxers. They say, hey, that drug companies are fooling around with the data and they won't release it and they release what they want and they won't release what they want. And we have no way of knowing whether these drugs are safe or not. And if they're hiding data, it's probably unsafe. Well, I don't blame people for feeling like that initially. And when people asked me back in February of 2021, 13 months ago, it seems so long ago, when the vaccines first came out, should I get vaccinated? I said, you probably should, but don't be the first in line because you can't really trust the, the safety data that's coming out of the drug companies. Now, in this case, there were so many people taking vaccines, rightly so, because this was a real crisis, that we quickly had real world data that showed that these drugs are um, far safer. The benefits that they provide override any potentially as yet undiscovered safety problems. There's no question about that. And, but we got real world data. So we, can, we, don't need to de, we don't need to depend on the drug company's data. But we've got to handle, we are in a, a problem because doctors can't tell in real time which of the new drugs are actually better and which ones are safe. And um, when we're in a crisis, it's a little hard to know what to do. You know, since you brought up the vaccines, you know, the last time I saw my father, uh, which was in late October, um, we were talking about the vaccines and he refused to get vaccinated. And he's like, Pfizer, I don't trust that company at all. Like, why would I put anything they make in my body? And you have a really good example of, you know, Pfizer's deceptive marketing practices, Neurontin or Gabapentin. I consulted to the FDA, to the Department of Justice and the FBI on a Pfizer drug um, called Bextra. It was like Vioxx, actually. I had been an expert in civil litigation. And I called the Department of Justice and said, I know something about this drug, uh, but I can't tell you because I've signed a confidentiality agreement. And they subpoenaed me and I brought my computer in and very smart people from the Department of Justice and the FBI um, uh, questioned me for hours. And uh, six months later, the Department of Justice issued a press release that said they had issued the largest fine in U criminal fine in U.S. history against Pfizer for its misrepresentations of this drug, Bextra. I know as well as anyone in this country what Pfizer has and can do wrong. I know that. I've been on the inside. I've seen the, I've seen the corporate hard drives. I've been able to analyze what they've done. I know what they've done in, in some of these drugs, uh, Bextra and Neurontin uh, in particular. Um, nonetheless, I want to say to your father that I don't blame him for his initial skepticism. He had no reason to trust that Pfizer wasn't injecting a large fraction 
of Americans of, of Americans with a drug whose safety hadn't been established. I agree with your dad initially, but we quickly had real world data so we could compare the death rates of people who were vaccinated and people who were not vaccinated. And we could quickly see that the people who were unvaccinated had death rates that were 10, 20, up to 40 times higher. Um, the people who were unvaccinated had 10 or 20 or 40 times higher death rates than the people who were vaccinated. So your dad's suspicious uh, suspicions were absolutely spot on. But the real world data quickly showed that the, the vaccines are far more effective uh, than any potential safety risks that hadn't been disclosed. Yeah. We people, the drug companies figure out whatever tactics they can use to market whatever the product they're working on. We, the public, need to figure out how we can be smart about benefiting from the best of biotechnology and avoiding the worst. Now, that said, it's very important for your listeners to understand, besides COVID, 80% of our health is determined by how we live our lives. And if we're fortunate enough to live in an environment where we can get the food that's healthy, get the exercise that's healthy, not smoke, walk, um, maintain a healthy body weight, that's 80% of our health. And only no more than 20% of our health is determined um, by the uh, healthcare we get. So for folks like your dad who are suspicious, A, take your health into your own hands and live, adopt healthy lifestyles. That's the best thing you can do for your health. And then B, a much harder job, and why I wrote sickening, is because some new medical technology, new drugs and devices are very helpful. And we want to be smart about getting the benefit of that without getting the harm or expense of the new products that are not helpful. Well, unfortunately for my father, it's too late. Um, he died of COVID on early November. Oh, I, I, I it's, am it's, so sorry. It's, it's fine. I've come to accept it. Uh, but, uh, you know, I got the Pfizer vaccine and last, it's almost been a year now. And I did have to make that decision, like, you know, weighing the pros and cons of do I trust this company or not? And I felt like the, the virus was more dangerous and uh, I couldn't convince my father. And even being a science reporter, you know, trying to show him all the data and everything, it was just, it's like there was just this wall of disinformation that I could not break through. And th that's why I brought it up. The example is just, you know, because we want to hate on these companies. We want to hate on big pharma, but sometimes that they are the best option and you have to kind of like parse that a little bit. I mean, I know lots of people that are leftists or, or sort of liberal. They're not all like Republican people that are still really vaccine hesitant. And unfortunately this pandemic's not over. Um, it's, it's, it seems like everybody's given up on it right now, but there's uh we've seen so many times before that new variants can come out or that, have another wave or whatever. Well, let's talk about that for a sec, Troy, because Pfizer and Moderna made these new vaccines. Um, they may have gotten a little bit out ahead of their skis um, on the safety issues, but it turns out that we were lucky. There weren't safety issues. Um, but because of pharma's greed, remember the, the purpose, what we would hope the purpose of developing new vaccines is, to decrease the risk of serious illness and death amongst Americans. That's what we would hope. And the fact that these vaccines work well for the people who get them for the time being does not prove that pharma achieved the goals that society would like them to achieve because in the process of maximizing their profits, which they always do, always, what they did is they sold their vaccines to the first world because they got paid more per shot by first world countries and uh, less wealthy countries got a 
very low percentage of the vaccines that are made. So right now, Africa has about a 16% vaccination rate. So well, well, Pfizer is making like 50% more than has ever been made by any drug for 2021-2022. Well, they're making all that money. And so far, their vaccines are pretty effective, but they still are not providing vaccines to the third world because they can make more money selling them in the first world. So that ensures that these variants are going to continue to come back. Delta came out of India when the vaccine rate was 4%. Um, Omicron came from somewhere near South Africa, if not South Africa, when the vaccine rate was less than 10%. And it's 100% certain that new variants are going to develop in under-vaccinated countries. So if they really cared about protecting Americans, let's just be nationalistic about this. Forget global equity and justice, just nationalistic. If they really cared about protecting Americans, they would do what the World Health Organization and the World Bank and the World Trade Organization have begged them to do, which is now to get the vaccination rate in the poorer countries up to 60% and 70% by the end of the by the end of this year. But that's not happening. They're dragging their feet, they're making excuses, they're telling, um, they're making promises that they don't keep because they don't care about the health of Americans. What they care about is maximizing their profits. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate. Um, I mean, that's an understatement uh, because I mean, I would I would you can you can tell me what you think about this, but I'm a little bit um, concerned that a variant will emerge from Ukraine right now because all the conflict that's going on over there. And that's happened historically, and all kinds of viral outbreaks have happened in war zones. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if it's going to be Ukraine. I don't know what their vaccination rate is, which which would be an important part of the equation. Yeah. Um, also, the crowding that's going on and so forth with the refugees. But let me get back to your dad, because in your dad's memory, can we say, can we make it clear to your listeners that the real world data Forget the drug companies. Forget Pfizer. Don't depend on their data. Let's say you think it's 100% fake. The real world data that compares the mortality rate in unvaccinated people and vaccinated people shows unequivocally that vaccinated people have a very small fraction of the risk of dying from COVID as unvaccinated people. And please, folks, Again, I know as much about what Pfizer does wrong as as anybody does that that doesn't work for Pfizer. But in this case, this is one, one of the four drugs that is effective. And don't rely on Pfizer. Rely on the real world data that says that vaccination is highly likely to protect you from getting seriously ill or dying from COVID. Please, folks, don't hold on to your anger and frustration about the drug industry's bad behavior. It's there. I can tell you more about it. I'll come back and do another show and tell you how bad they are. But but the real world data shows that these vaccines are effective and let's use them. Yeah, I agree with that and endorse that message. And I mean... (laughs) I know some people will probably roll their eyes at that, but there's just no convincing some folks, and that's okay, too. Um, Well, if that's the case, I think people have to ask themselves, what's holding them back from looking at the real-world data? What are the prejudices? What are the preconceptions that are holding them back? Because I believe the data are so clear now, the real-world data, not Pfizer's data, but the real-world data, are so clear that any rational person who understands that, understands the real world data, would get vaccinated. I'm not for mandates. Uh, they cause more trouble than they, more, you know, they're more harm than benefit. I agree. But I'm pleading with people to give up your prejudices and look at the real world data with clear eyes and see the benefit. Yeah. And that's personally what I did is when the last year around this time when vaccines were rolling out is I didn't pay attention to what the drug companies were saying. I paid attention to the real world data. 
and, and what other experts were saying, like independent experts. And, and that's sort of, you know, since we're on the topic of vaccines, like, you know, maybe part of the reason why these pharmaceutical companies won't give up their patents, why they're dragging their feet on rolling out these vaccines to every country on Earth, why we're not flooding the world with these things, because that's how we actually crush the virus is just blanketing vaccinations everywhere. But they're they're doing everything they can to not do that. And maybe it's because they, I don't know, want another wave so they can give like a fourth booster. Thank you for pushing back. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I understand why you would say that. But I think a simpler and I believe far more likely explanation is they're going to make as much money as they can in the short term. They're going to do whatever's going to make money in the short term. And what makes money is selling their vaccines to the first world uh, for top dollar and not really caring about the third world. As pressure has grown, they've made some moves. Um, I don't know how effective those moves are. They certainly haven't. Certainly the, the vaccination rate for, for Africa hasn't gotten anywhere near what it needs to be to decrease the risk of variants coming out of there. But I don't, I think sort of the, the kind of conspiratorial thinking that says, and it would increase their profits to ensure a constant stream of variants. I agree with you, Troy. It, it's easy to jump to that conclusion. I think it's too complicated. They're just grabbing as much money as they can in the short term. And that means selling the drugs to the high, the vaccines to the highest bidder. And right now it's the first world. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, in your book, you talk about this, uh, how, how we can go about fixing this issue. Um, and c- can we talk about solutions? That's something I really care about in my journalism is not to just to complain or point out problems, but also give people reasons to have hope and like th- that we can fix these issues. Absolutely. So l- let's take a satellite view of the problem here. 80% of Americans think that drug prices are too high. And prior to the COVID pandemic, about that number of people or higher thought that the drug industries are more interested in profits than they are in helping people. So there's overwhelming agreement. Prices are too high. And the priority of the drug companies is profit, not people. So why, one would ask, in a democracy, Aren't drug prices controlled, brought down? And why isn't the the knowledge that is purveyed to doctors and the public overseen so that it is accurate and represents the best approach to improving Americans' health? And the answer is that with regard to our healthcare system, our democracy is failing. The bipartisan, what appears on the surface to be bipartisan agreement that we should lower drug costs is really bipartisan agreement upon the legislators to keep their hands out and be receiving money from the drug industry. So that about the same percentage of Democrats and Republicans take money from the drug industry. And we've got a situation where we have a a failure of democracy because the legislators are getting paid off. And somehow the job never gets done in the legislature. Uh, It's a failure of democracy. And there's only one remedy for that. That is for the people of the United States, the healthcare professionals who do their best, 99.9% are totally committed to helping their patients the best way possible. They don't understand that they're being manipulated by the drug industry. But the healthcare professionals need to get involved and say, we cannot work with the articles in the medical journals that are peer-reviewed, where the data is withheld from peer reviewers and medical journal editors and guideline writers. So what they think is evidence-based medicine is not evidence-based medicine because you can't have evidence-based medicine without evidence. And the docs don't know this. The vast majority of doctors, and I would guess that it was above 95%, don't understand that so-called peer-reviewed articles are not based on a transparent and independent review of the data. So the healthcare professionals need to become activists 
so they can do the job that they've dedicated their lives to, to provide the most effective and efficient health care to their patients. That's one part of the constituency that needs to be formed. Healthcare professionals cannot do their job under these circumstances. And to show how, how much that affects Americans' health, Americans in 2019, before the pandemic, Americans ranked 68th in the world on healthy life expectancy, behind China, behind Cuba, behind Jamaica. Our health is abominable. And yet we live in this la-la land, this make-believe fantasy land that we have the best access to the newest innovation and that we get the best new drugs soonest and therefore we have the best health care. Well, we have the most expensive health care. We spend a trillion and a half dollars extra every year on health care. We have the most expensive health care and we do have the most innovation. But innovation doesn't mean that the products are better. They just mean that more money can be made by replacing old products with new products. That's what innovation means. It doesn't mean progress. It means selling more, make, selling more expensive products. So the healthcare professionals need to get over the idea that practicing by the prescribing and utilizing the latest biotech innovation is going to be best for the patients. It's not working. The experiment is not working. Number two, is the purchases of healthcare, be that government or unions or health insurance plans, that in the, in the, the, uh, the businesses, the businesses that pay for healthcare need to band together and say, we can't function in the global economy because Americans are spending $4,500 extra for every man, woman, and child every year on healthcare. So we're starting out in an uncompetitive position. And the healthcare purchasers could have a lot of say if they banded together and said, no, we demand that the data be available for peer-reviewed articles. We demand that there's an independent organization that assesses new medical products to evaluate where they ought to fit in in the optimal spectrum of therapy, how effective they are and how safe they are. We're the only developed country that doesn't do that. Nobody knows. It's just the marketing claims that create the illusion that these drugs are being evaluated. So the healthcare professionals need to get in it. The non-healthcare related purchasers of healthcare need to get in it so that they get value and can provide good health coverage for their uh, employees and their families and remain competitive in the global uh, environment. And then most important, the consumers need to get in it because they're not getting good health care. Americans are so much unhealthier, so much unhealthier than the citizens of the other developed countries that 1,300 Americans a day die because our health care is inferior. 1,300 Americans a day dying. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. It's, it, it's, it's, I mean, what's going on in Ukraine is just horrible. But I don't think even now 1,300 Ukrainians are dying a day. But 1,300 Americans die day in and day out because our health care is so inferior. So if we could have an active coalition of healthcare professionals, non-healthcare-related purchases of health care, and consumers, they could create the political pressure that would produce results. But that political pressure has to be strong enough and wide enough to overcome the financial pressure that the uh, biotech industry exerts on legislators with money and campaign contributions and lobbying and so forth. So it's a test of our democracy. It's unclear that, that, that the good guys can win this, but it's for sure that they will, the good guys will lose if we don't all become activists demanding better and more efficient healthcare. That's great. Yeah. I, I like how you connect this to um, our democracy because I don't think a lot of people make that connection that having access to good health is a human right, in my opinion. Uh, and having access to that is a part of all your other freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. 
it's it's a part of our democracy to be able to have good health care. Um, and it, it's surprising to me, you know, drug prices are out of control and everybody wants this to be fixed pretty much. It's a bipartisan issue among Republicans, uh, Democrats and everybody else. Um, but it seems like nothing can be done politically about this. It's very frustrating. Um, what, what are your thoughts on multi-billionaire Mark Cuban's Cost Plus project? It's an online pharmacy that I think it just opened recently and it's it's providing drugs at a lower price sort of to kind of fix this issue. Yes. Um, it's kind of a safety valve kind of idea because a lot of money gets siphoned off of the healthcare system through third party, um, through the uh, uh, PBMs, the pharmacy benefit managers. Money gets siphoned off all over the place. Um, and if Mark Cuban or anybody else can say, look, they're charging... I'm going to make up a number, $400 a month for this drug, but I can sell it for $320 a month because I'm going to protect some of that money from people who are skimming it off. That's a good thing. I mean, if you're buying the drug and you have to pay $400 and you can get it for $320, I say, yes, do it. But please, please don't think that that's the answer to the problem. It's not. It's just a safety valve. And what you're paying 400 for probably should be a, a fraction of that. Uh, you, you talk about this uh, coalition coming together of, of healthcare workers, insurers, and people who pay the cost, and, and consumers like us, people that are listening to this podcast, uh, coming together. And I wonder if there's like, you know, sort of a good slogan or something like that that could kind of bring together the goals of people sort of like you know medicare for all or the green new deal when you hear those terms you generally know what the political goals are of those statements or 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 whatever you want to call them um is there something like that for this to just sort of like bring more transparency to the healthcare and medical industry bring more transparency to the healthcare and medical industry yeah um i I don't have, let's go back to work on that one. Effective and efficient healthcare for all is what I would say. Yeah. And you raise an important issue by bringing up Medicare for all. Right. It's attractive in the sense that every American should have healthcare uh, coverage. Um, That's a matter of basic human right. But we can't do it now because there's so much money being wasted in our healthcare system. Mm -hmm. About 7% of our GDP is being wasted in our healthcare system. The drugs are outrageously expensive. We don't even know which drugs work. The insulin problem, for example, is based on the cost of insulin analogs. The previous generation of insulin does just as well for people with type 2 diabetes, and that's not even part of the debate. Yeah. So we've got to get these initial problems figured out, and then we should have healthcare for all. But to do healthcare for all now, is just going to socialize a trillion and a half dollars excess in payment that is transferred from working Americans to the drug and other medical industries. A trillion and a half dollars taken from working families and given to the healthcare industry. And we, we can't afford that now. So we've got to start to straighten these problems out. We've got to know that we can get to the real solutions to these problems. Before we move to um, provide healthcare benefits for all, I mean, let me tell you, I mean, this is a stunning example, but Obamacare went into effect in 2014. Right. 40% of Americans who didn't have healthcare coverage got healthcare coverage very quickly uh, in 2014. But between 2014 and 2019, before the pandemic started, Americans' health did not improve. 40% of uninsured Americans got covered, and Americans' health did not improve. We can't, we're not going to fix American health care without getting to the core problems about the knowledge being co-opted to maximize corporate profits. We've got to fix that problem. Yeah, I think that's a good point. You have one of the more sober criticisms of Medicare for all that I've encountered, because you you do want to see everybody get healthcare coverage, 
but maybe this isn't the best strategy because everything else is so out of control that it, it's just not feasible. At this point, it's just socializing the the the, the healthcare industry's greed, mm-hmm. socializing the fulfillment of the healthcare industry industry's greed. We can't afford that. Yeah, working yeah. people in America are getting a raw deal. We we didn't get to discuss the way that um, white Americans without a college education, what the way their health has suffered, not just through narcotics overdoses, but three times more than the narcotic overdoses and suicides is just the general degeneration of their health mm-hmm. from cardiac disease, from diabetes, from ordinary things. So the health of Americans is being robbed by the greed of the healthcare industry. And if we go to Medicare for all, we're just going to satisfy the greed with working people's, you know, like, like a, a $4,500 a year tax on every working American. Yeah. And I think that maybe bringing in the medical industry or the the big pharmaceutical companies to solve this problem, people should be pretty skeptical or wary of that because that's sort of what happened with Obamacare is they kind of stepped in and like, oh, we'll kind of write these laws so that they benefit us. We'd love to have the government pay for more insurance, but I mean, maybe we can unpack that a little bit. Like why, why didn't we see health improve after Obamacare passed? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you you're you got it, Troy. I mean, the the insurance industry made uh, a bundle of money, the hospital industry made a bundle of money, the pharmaceutical industry made a bundle of money, because as the as the regulations, the rules of the rules of the game for Obamacare were finalized, they those industries made sure they got what they wanted. We shouldn't let that happen again. We've got to be politically savvy. And this is a real problem. It's complicated. That's why I wrote Sickening. It's complicated. I mean, this is a lifetime of work for me to figure out what the hell is going on here so that we can take effective action. Yeah. And uh, it shouldn't be this way. In a better society, the people who uh, the legislators and the regulators in a democracy would be looking out for our interest. Yeah. The industries have captured the legislative process, and now the people are not being served. And the people are going to have to invest some time and energy, learn what's going on, and become politically active so that the legislators, even though their hands are out and they're getting filled with cash from the industry, mm-hmm. there are so many people outside their door saying, we don't, we are not going to vote for you. You know, take your money because it's the last time you're going to get it because you're going because we demand health care. Yeah. Well, is there anything about this topic that's giving you optimism, such as maybe I don't know how you feel about uh, the new head of the FDA, Dr. Uh, Robert Khalif or Khalif. I don't know how to say his name. Uh, that is cautious optimism. He has been friend, a friend to the drug industry and sometimes like Nixon going to China. Um, somebody who's had the opposite uh, uh, predilections um, can achieve really good things like going to China. So I would be cautiously optimistic about that. But what I would say is that we've got to go back to basics and understand how poorly Americans' health needs are being served by the current healthcare industry and the political relations in the current healthcare industry. And we've got to demand that the healthcare industry do better. Yeah. All right. Well, I feel like this is a good place to wrap up. Is there anything else on this topic on people to know about? No, I just want to say, Troy, in, in wrapping up, that I thank you for the opportunity hugely to sure. talk to your listeners. And one of the reasons why this situation has gotten so bad is that the critique of the healthcare industry doesn't get adequate coverage by mainstream media. So the drug ads, we we didn't talk about them. And, you know, everyone knows, you know, it's just ridiculous. One thing that is important and not obvious about the drug ads is that when there's a drug ad next to a segment on TV, TV news or TV shows, it's very unlikely that there will be a critic of the drug industry on that television segment. And when we say, how could this possibly have gotten so far out of hand? 
the healthcare devolving into this disaster that it now is requires that the media not present a fair um, assessment of the function of American healthcare. So we've got to create that dialogue. And I think that dialogue needs to be created on the non-commercial media, like the podcast we're talking on right now, Mm -hmm. that we've got to look for ways to communicate amongst ourselves, those of us who are trying to reimpose democracy on American healthcare have to figure out new ways of communicating, new ways of getting these ideas out and sharing them and and forming political strategies. The old ways don't work. They're blocked. Yeah, I, I agree. And I thank you for the book. It's Again, it's called Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare and How We Can Repair It. You can get it now. Um, Dr. Abramson, how, where can people find you online? I will get that to you. I'm working on it. I'm, I'm uh, beyond the age of competence uh, in social media, and I'm working to rectify it. So, Troy, I'll write to you. We're, I'm getting a Twitter account up as we speak. Okay. I'll write to you so you can send it out to your listeners. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you again for coming on. It was a great conversation, and, and I, I appreciate it a lot. Well, I much appreciated on my side, and thanks for all the work you've done preparing for this and bringing it to your listeners. Thanks for listening to Narcotica, an independent production by Troy Farah, Christopher Moraff, and Zachary Siegel. I'm your co-producer, Aaron Ferguson. If you like the show, you can support us by joining our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash narcotica. You can get some merch like stickers and more perks that are coming soon. A little goes a long way, guys, so thanks for helping us out. We're ad-free and we want to keep it that way. If Patreon isn't for you, that's fine. You can help us out by just spreading the word. Tell all your friends about the podcast, advocating for social justice and abolishing the drug war. Rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by Glass Boy, and Jenny Shea is the voice of Narcotica. Additional music is by myself, alias Nomad, drug-using producer. You can follow us on Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I guess we have an Instagram now, too. Those are the best ways to try and contact us if you have a suggestion, complaint, or just want to tell us nice things. SoundCloud, YouTube, Spotify, and iTunes. That's about everything. Have a good week, guys.